Well, stand-up comedian Jeff Foxworthy is best known for his many you-might-be-a-redneck jokes. You know, if every day somebody comes to your door mistakenly thinking you're having a yard sale, you might be a redneck. Or uh, if you ever cut your grass and found that there was a car in your yard, <laughs> you might be a redneck. And on and on it goes. Well, I don't consider myself a redneck, but I am a will moron. And uh, strange as it may seem, I love this little can anything good come out of Nazareth two stoplight town that touches the world. I'm actually what you might call a double dipper. I've graduated from both of these institutions and I've lived here now almost 50 years of my life. And so I got to thinking, you might be a will moron if partying on Friday night means dinner at Subway or Great Wall topped off by shopping at Dollar General and Fitch's IGA. <laughs> or here's, here's another one. You might be a will moron if downtown Wilmore is no longer an oxymoron to you. I suspect we could come up with a bunch of hilarious, you might be an Asbury Theological Seminary student if lines, but I dare not go there this morning. <laughs> Just send your suggestions to Heidi Wilcox. <laughs> but anyway, in the light of this year's seminary theme, the life of servanthood, I was drawn to this familiar passage in John chapter 13. Many people consider this to be the quintessential passage on servanthood in the New Testament. We even have a towel and basin award here at the seminary that gets its name from it. And as I was reflecting on this passage, it, it just seemed to naturally unfold in telling us three essential things about the life of servanthood that Jesus is calling us to. And so, if you'll forgive my old school three-point sermon fashion, I just want to unpack them for you this morning. And I want to consider each one under the heading, you might be a servant if. So here we go. You might be a servant if you truly understand the incredible greatness of who you are in Christ. It's interesting in telling this story how careful John is to describe Jesus' actions. He tells us that Jesus did seven things. He got up from the table, took off his outer garment, his robe, tied a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, washed each one of the disciples' feet, put his robe back on, and sat back down at the table. And each one of those things is, is highly significant in underscoring the extent to which Jesus goes in assuming the position here of a lowly household servant. We could talk about that, but we're not going to. Because what I don't want you to miss is this. 
John not only carefully describes what Jesus did, he also carefully tells us why Jesus did it. Listen again to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going to God, got up from the table. Jesus knew who he, who he was. Jesus, Jesus knows his past origin. He had come from God. He knows his future destiny. He was going to God, and he knows his present authority. The Father had put all things in his hands. Wow. That's a lot to know, isn't it? And it was because he knew all that and was absolutely sure about all that that John tells us he got up from the table and poured water into a basin. In other words, there's a causal relationship here between what he knew and what he did. What he knows about himself. He had come from God. He was going to God. The Father had put him all things in his hands, knowing that moves him to get up from the table and assume the posture of a servant. In fact, get this now, it was because he thought so highly of himself that he acted so lowly. Because he was God's beloved son, he could be God's suffering servant. It's fascinating how recently a growing number of prominent New Testament scholars like John Barclay and Michael Gorman are suggesting that uh, there are a couple of familiar verses in Paul's writings that have been mistranslated. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's the standard translation. But no, they're saying it shouldn't be though he was rich, yet he became poor, but rather because he was rich, he became poor. For you Greek nerds, given the context, it's a, cons it's, it's a causal, not a concessive participle. Because, not through. Likewise, Philippians 2, 5 and 6, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that should be translated not though he was in the form of God, but because he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Wow, did you see how huge this is? It's so counterintuitive, so radical, that translators just assumed it had to be though he was rich, though he was in the form of God. And yet what a big difference this makes. Jesus, not in spite of, but because 
He knew his divine origin and destiny and authority was able to assume the form of a servant. It's, it's his divinity that gives him the power to descend. Because he is God, he can go so low. Because he's the great lion, he can be the slain lamb. And do you see the profound implications that this has for the life of servanthood? You'll never become a servant of Christ if you think too lowly of yourself. You gotta be a somebody before you can be a nobody. Otherwise, you'll spend your life and whatever ministry your calling is trying to prove to others, to your congregation, to your ministry colleagues, to your ecclesiastical superiors, and most of all, trying to prove to yourself that you're somebody. And you'll be tempted to use the work of ministry and those to whom you minister to get the feelings of acceptance and accomplishment and acclaim that you so desperately need to convince yourself that you're somebody. On the day of his baptism, when he came up out of the water, Jesus heard the Father's voice. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And his ministry flowed out of the, of, of the fullness and the overflow of knowing that, not out of an attempt to fill up an emptiness in the soul. His ministry was not about proving he was a son, a beloved son, but just simply demonstrating that he was. The reason he could be empty the way he did was because he was so full. He could be so meek and lowly because he was so high and mighty. So I wonder this morning, what needs to happen in your life to get you to the place that you know in your core, in the foundation of your being, what a dearly beloved daughter or son you are and how well-pleasing in his sight you are, that you've come from God and that you're going to God and that as Paul says in Christ, all things are yours. I wonder this morning if you need to repent and renounce all your efforts to fill up your own emptiness, your ways of proving to yourself that you're somebody. Do you need to smash the building blocks in your Tower of Babel-like attempts to make a name for yourself? Lord, set me free from my old self, from all my attempts to make a name for myself. Give me a new self, so full of you that I can be empty for you, a servant for you. And I also wonder if there might be some of us here this morning who need to receive some healing from Jesus.
for some past hurts that we've experienced, some memories of things that have happened, things that have been done to us, some messages that we've received that have convinced us that we'll always be nobody and we better just get used to it. Would you like to invite Jesus to show you what needs to happen? And would you invite him and give him permission to take you on a healing journey to allow him to do that good work in you? Jesus knew who he was. You might be a servant if you've truly come to understand the incredible greatness of who you are as a son, as a daughter in Christ. And then, and then second, you might be a servant if you first allowed Jesus to serve you. So in the story that was read, you know, Peter vigorously protests when it's his turn to get his feet washed. In fact, he flat out refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. You'll never wash my feet, he blurts out. Well, forget about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. At that point, Peter runs into a brick wall. He gets this firm, unyielding pushback from Jesus. Never say never, Peter. This is not up for discussion. It's non-negotiable unless I wash you. You have no share in me. And so reluctantly, Peter goes along and lets him do it. But why was this so hard for Peter? You know, the scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive, but the truth is for most of us, and, and especially for us Christian leaders who are always giving, serving, ministering to others, it's actually much harder for most of us to receive than it is to give, to be served rather than to serve. See, when, when you minister to others, you're, you're generally in control, aren't you? And you operate from above, out of a place of strength, and you're the strong one, and those that you're serving or ministering to, those, they're the weak ones who need your help. But when you let someone minister to you, to serve you, then... Well, things change, and they're the ones that are in charge. And by letting them do it, you are implicitly acknowledging your own weakness and your own need. And isn't that about the last thing in the world for which you and I want to be known as weak, as incompetent, as needy? About 15 years ago, I was at a conference where I heard a prominent Christian leader say this, 
I've come to realize, he said, how difficult it is for me to admit that I'm in need. In fact, he said, it's, it's actually easier for me to confess that I've sinned and tell others that I've sinned than it is for me to admit that I'm in need. You know, the Holy Spirit used his words just to nail me because I was carrying around some deep pain and hurt from something that had happened about a year before, but I was refusing to acknowledge it or own it or deal with it or walk into it like that knight in the classic Monty Python movie who had his arm chopped off, you know, I kept telling myself, it's only a flesh wound. <laughs> I just wanted a soldier on, you know. And the Holy Spirit used what he said that afternoon and when I went forward, to let a group of people lay hands on me and pray for me, it was like a stopper had been pulled out of a bottle and tears gushed forth with an intensity that surprised me and shocked me. You mean I've really been hurting that much? My point is we don't like to be needy, weak, powerless and out of control. It feels shameful and embarrassing. So we'd much rather wash other people's feet than let them wash ours. Yet Jesus says, unless you first let me serve you, you'll never be my servant and rightly serve others. I wonder, do you need to let Jesus wash your feet this morning? Is there a place of need you need to acknowledge, a place of weakness, a place of brokenness, something in you that's just downright ugly, something, in fact, that you just despise about yourself, so much so that you're not only ashamed, you just out, flat out refuse to let Jesus come near it. And Jesus is here this morning, and he wants to wash your feet. But Jesus, you know, won't heal things that we insist on hiding from him. And he won't wash your feet unless you let him. You need to take off your sandals, your shoes, socks. You might be a servant if you know how incredibly great you are, and you might be a servant if you realize how needy you are. And finally, you might be a servant if Jesus truly is your master and Lord. So when he had finished washing their feet and put his robe back on and sat down, Jesus says to them, you call me master and Lord, teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So 
If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I'm calling you to a life of servanthood, Jesus is telling them. To a life of downward mobility in an upwardly mobile world. But come on now. Who really wants that? Certainly not these 12 disciples. At this very last supper meal in Luke's account, we read, quote, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Hey, human greatness, that's what they were aspiring to, and they were just confident and sure that Messiah Jesus was going to help them get there. I mean, what do you, why do you think they were following him? He's going to help us get what we want. The Messiah wants to help you be a better you, right? That was the conventional wisdom. That's what the TV preachers back then were saying, and that's what they're saying today. But now Jesus comes along and says, according to Luke's account, I am among you as one who serves. In other words, I haven't come to make you better. I've come to make you debtor. Dead to your old self and your old ideas of human greatness and alive to my life in you. My life of downward mobility in an upwardly mobile world. You call me Lord and Master, but it's not enough to call me that. I want you to embody that. A life of simple obedience to my command, ready to do my will. That's what I intend for you. Not half-hearted obedience, but wholehearted obedience. To be a servant means you have to be all in. As the eyes of the Lord, of the servant, look to the hand of the master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. That's how the psalmist describes it. Fifty years ago, I was a seminary student here at Asbury, just like many of you are now. And out of the many, many wonderful things this school did for me, the best thing it did was to call me to a life of full surrender, entire sanctification. wholehearted love. Called me to be all in. As John Wesley puts it in that covenant prayer, I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing 
put me to suffering. Let me be exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. I wonder if you come to that place in your life yet. You may be a servant if you've come to the place of surrender where Jesus truly is your master and Lord. I wonder this morning, what needs to happen for you to go deeper into a life of servanthood? What's Jesus speaking to you about this morning? I want to invite the the band to come and lead us in a worship song. And and if, if, if Jesus is speaking to you and you need to do some business with him, whatever that's about, uh, I just want you to know that this uh, altar here and these first few pews here, they, they, this is a place of prayer for you to come and talk with him. To allow him to work in you. Let's stand and you come if Jesus is speaking to you.